0: Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University.
1: I think one of the challenges for me with Net Promoter in the way that organizations look at it is they think it's the answer to the universe and everything, basically in terms of, all we have to do is measure this one number and that's the answer.
2: And those scores are carefully gathered anonymously, so there is no fear or favor in the system.
0: So this is from team members evaluating their leaders.
2: Yes, on essentially, on are they the kind of people that you want to work with and and be led by? one thing that a CEO can do is build the culture and figure out how how to measure success in that community.
1: So Ryan, we have a real honor today. We have Fred Reichelt on the show with us. So hello, Fred. Nice to uh, be speaking with you again. Ryan, I'm going to show my age now, mate. I remember Fred doing a presentation in London Uh, This was when I was in corporate life. And I remember sitting in the audience and thinking, and there was about a thousand people there. And I remember thinking, bloody hell, this is great. You know what? I want to do that. First of all, Fred, thank you very much for inspiring me to uh, get off from my seat and actually do it. So to introduce Fred, I would actually call Fred the father of customer loyalty. What we do know is that he set up the uh, practice for customer loyalty in Bain. Fred is the inventor of Net Promoter Score. He's had 15 articles appear in HBR, and he's a fellow LinkedIn influencer. Uh, I could literally carry on for the next five minutes telling you all of Fred's uh, accomplishments, uh, but I won't. It really is uh, an honor for you to be on the show, Fred. Thanks, Colin.
0: Yes, thanks for being here.
1: Fred has written a new book, and we wanted to go into that in a bit more depth. Can you tell us a bit about the book? Tell us a bit about, there's some interesting things in it, questions I've, I've got to pose for you. Uh, Ryan, as usual, mate, you're not gonna get a, a question in sideways, so you can actually sign off now if you want.
0: I've actually started a snack, Colin, so <laughs> yeah, Just let me know.
2: So Fred, tell us a bit about the new book. Well, the new book is called Winning on Purpose, and it started with my frustration that although the Net Promoter score and system has, uh, has spread beyond my wildest dreams, I saw an article in Fortune last year that said that over two-thirds of the uh, Fortune 1000 now use Net Promoter. So wonderful news in terms of uptake. But my personal observation is by far most of the uh, practitioners are using it very poorly. And in some cases, actually misusing it and abusing it, and I, I wanted to get that back on track. I think very few of the people now who think they use Net Promoter have any idea what the core purpose of it is, and and what the the fundamental use case is that I had in mind.
1: I'm glad you said that, Fred. Sorry to interrupt, because I totally agree with that. I'm really pleased that Net Promoters going so well, but I totally agree that people are using it. A lot of people use it in the In the wrong way so sorry to interrupt but tell us why you think that's the case then
2: well too many people have started using as a stick or paying bonuses on it Anytime you link a survey-based score to someone's personal career or their bonus bad things happen because they do everything in their power to to change the score and the score becomes the obsession whereas the, the fundamental idea behind customer behind an nps system is love your customers, treat them the way you'd want a loved one so that they their life is enriched. And that has business implications because they come back for more and bring their friends. But I think it also has human implications for the employee because your own life is enriched when you serve others in, in a way that, that there earns a standing ovation. And what Net Promoter was meant to do is collect those standing ovations so employees can hear them. And when they don't earn them, give them a hint about what they could do differently to enrich more of the lives that they touch so now look at how most companies have really mangled that and said oh now I have net promoter a way to hold my people accountable for not angering customers so when when they get low scores I'll humiliate them and I'll I'll put leaderboards up on the wall and I'll uh, I'll link their compensation or maybe their employability to not falling into the bottom quartile and it just destroys the, uh, the effect. And it's all about bribing and manipulating and arguing about, you know, Germans never give tens and say, fine, and, you know, this wasn't about earning tens. It's to inspire and learn. That's probably the worst thing I've seen done. But also now companies are reporting this to their investors with absolutely no standards of how it was collected, whether it was right after a transaction or whether it's relationship-based what the response rate was, it, you know, it's just garbage in, garbage out. I, I report any score that's high and makes me look good, which of course destroys the credibility of the scoring process. Sure. So a lot of bad things, but not everyone was doing it badly. The book lays out some of the best practices, which are just mind-bogglingly excellent. And Bain and & Company itself, who was the first practitioner of Net Promoter, Because once I when I invented it, it was really out of a Bain culture, and Bain was the first one to adopt it for running itself. And one of the outcomes was Bain now measures net promoter in a very scientifically rigorous way in a separate data business called NPS Prism. So we now have millions and millions of pieces of feedback of correctly gathered net promoter insight and can do x-rays of entire industries. And I thought, well this is pretty cool. I now can see who has the best net promoter outcome truly on apples to apples basis. And I started investing in those companies because my theory is financial metrics really point you toward the wrong winners, that what drives financials long-term is customers coming back for more and bringing their friends. Right. And this net promoter score correctly gathered gives you a much deeper insight. You know, long story short, my stock portfolio has more than tripled the market over the last decade. Wow. It's just crushed it. Wow. And now in the book, I, I sort of, I reveal everything that I, I know because I think I'm wealthy enough. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I'm old enough. It, it just, if I made another $20 million, it would not change my life one iota. So how can I change the world? I can probably get them back on track toward the original purpose, which is to help your employees embrace a mission of enriching the lives that they touch.
1: And when you say enriching the lives that they touch, I mean, if you looked at most businesses, they would say that we are here to make a profit, we are here to provide shareholder value. I mean, those were the things that I was, I was taught.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm here as a human being to make sure my heart beats and that my blood flows and that I get three square meals. That's a pretty low baseline. That doesn't inspire anybody. That's not a life well lived.
1: Sure. I guess Ryan, actually thinking about it, that starts to talk about Maslow, doesn't it?
0: Uh, I mean, from the employee's standpoint, certainly. It's interesting that one of the criticisms of business over the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 years is this kind of artificial sense of meaning that a lot of businesses try to drum up for employees, where we've got credos and codes and chants. And you're pointing to something deeper, Fred, kind of a a, a meaningfulness that we can derive from the work itself.
2: The reason the book's called Winning on Purpose is this is a book about how to live a purpose-driven life as an individual, as a team, and as a company. And it's not just a pipe dream. It turns out the ones that do it right and embrace the right purpose, and I make a pretty radical argument, I, I think there is only one class of purposes that work in business, That the primary purpose a a business exists is to enrich the lives of customers, to solve their problems and put smiles on their faces. And anybody who tries something else is failing, as the book demonstrates pretty clearly.
1: So, how does that tie in then, Fred, with somebody like Branson who would say we put employees first and customers second?
2: Well, I, I completely agree with him. I think great leaders understand that they have to take care of their employees, to to inspire them to embrace the right mission, which is to enrich the lives of the customers that they touch. But then once the leaders got their teams on that mission, their job is to watch out for their safety, their health, their well-being, that they have the right tools to accomplish that mission. And what Net Promoter does is to give them a system to know when they earn standing ovations and when they don't so they can feel the love from their customers. I know we have to get paid to do our job. So salary and benefits have to be fair and reasonable, but that's not what inspires people. What inspires them is being a valued member of a team that is really winning with its customers and making customers' lives better.
0: It's understandable that you would frame this around net promoter score, but this is a problem that's larger than just net promoter score. It seems like companies fall into this trap too easily anytime they try to measure something and then therefore turn it into a a cudgel. I assume that some of the the advice that you give applies to to any kind of measurement-driven incentives or motivations or or the way companies are, are measuring things internally?
2: Well, I disagree. I actually do think until you can measure something, you can't really learn and make progress. You can't come to a common language where people actually agree on successes and failures. So the the need to measure is is crucial. The problem comes when people link those measures inappropriately to someone's short-term success in the business. Right. If people are accepting good measures, recognizing nothing's perfect, but let's get the 80 or 90% of the truth out of that metric that it can bring us, then good things happen. But when they say stupid things like, oh, this particular metric, even though it's sloppily measured, is going to determine your bonus, then you get a disaster.
1: So how do you measure then enrichment and love?
2: I think there are a lot of ways. And Net Promoter, when it's done correctly, a la NPS Prism, does quite nicely this notion of why does someone recommend to a friend? because their own life has been enriched and they want to share with that with a loved one they they want that experience for someone they care about so it's an act of love and watching and understanding true recommendations and referrals is wonderful and as you'll see in the book that's a vital uh, advance that, that companies need to make they they can't just take these recommendations and referrals as prognostications which is what net promoter gets at because it's likelihood to recommend but actually track them, because that's the gold in business. Tony Shea was the uh, CEO of Zappos, died tragically this last year, but just yeah. brilliant insights. He said, Fred, the only reason that people have to put money into marketing and sales and advertising and PR is that they're not really special for their customers. He says, those are taxes you have to pay for not being special. And that leads you, that's true. And it leads you down a path that, wow, if you were so good at enriching customer lives that they became your sales force, your marketing, your PR, your advertising, you'd be pretty efficient. You'd be growing profitably. That's the essential idea behind net promoter economics. There's only one way to grow a great, profitable, sustainable business. And Andy Taylor was the first guy, the fellow who built Enterprise Rent-A-Car into the Leviathan it is today. Yeah. largest in the world. He said, Fred, there's only one way to grow. And I was I was sort of mystified because being strategy consultant at Bain, I'm looking for strategic advantages and <laughs> economic microeconomics. And he said, oh, Fred, let's get basic here. You got to make sure your customers are treated so well, they come back for more and bring their friends. That's the basic flywheel that drives all great business. And it's true at Apple. It's true at, uh, you name it, at Warby Parker. Um, The companies I invest in have this flywheel running at full tilt. And yet accounting financial metrics do not measure that flywheel directly. They try to measure second and third order effects. But how many companies could tell you how much of their revenue this quarter or this year came from customers who were with them last year and from referrals that they gave to their friends and relatives? And the answer is about zero. The right way to measure a business is to measure that flywheel. And and Winning on Purpose, the book, actually shows people how to do that.
1: How are you going to grow your market when everyone is competing on the same things? What are your customers' unmet needs in your market? What drives and destroys most value for you? And what are you going to do first? Since two thousand and five we've been helping organizations answer these questions. Our unique discovery tool, the Emotional Signature, will change the way that you look at your market. Let's have an informal conversation on how we may be able to help you. To set this up, simply go to beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash contact. And we look forward to talking to you. Can you expand upon... All- Tell us about the, your concept of this earned growth.
2: Yeah, I was so frustrated that people kept using net promoter scores inappropriately that I, I finally figured out I, I can't just preach against it. I've got to come up with an alternative. That's an appropriate metric to hold people accountable for. And it, and therefore, it really needs to be accounting-based because accounting is the only system we have where there's auditing, there's, there's rules of measurement, people go to jail if they cheat. It, you know, people are serious in the, in the accounting world. So I've, I finally saw that if you can just measure with accounting rigor, earned growth rate, how much of your, your growth is earned from this flywheel of customers coming back for more and referring their friends, and how much is bought through acquisitions, through sales and marketing, through uh, new store locations, all the, all the investments, some of which pay off, but are not the core to building a great business. And you can do it. And in fact, there are a handful of companies already doing it. I have a Harvard Business Review article just out that lays out the mechanics of measuring earned growth rate and shows you and, and describes a couple of two or three companies that are using it quite effectively. I see earned growth uh, where a net promoter was 20 years ago. Right. Very powerful. And and I suspect in the next 10 to 20 years, there won't be a serious business person that doesn't know about earned growth.
1: So earned growth measures enrichment and
2: well it measures what percentage of customers are coming back for more and bringing their friends and what impact that's having on your revenue growth
1: right by breaking it down into earned growth and brought
2: growth and bought growth correct
1: right how do you categorize those those two things then?
2: earned is well it's, it's there's two components to it part of earned growth is just revenue from existing customers who are coming back for more and expanding their purchases and that's a metric that several industries use intensively already. Software as a Service (SaaS) has a net revenue retention rate, which is exactly what we're what I'm talking about. So that component's been well defined; it's it's well oiled. Not in all industries yet, but but it works, and it and it links to SaaS companies' uh, market valuation. So investors understand it quite well. The trickier one is how can I keep track of the referrals that those happy existing customers are generating. And there, I'm sure there will be more solutions, but the one that we've uh, tested quite effectively is anytime a customer comes on as a new customer, just ask them, what's the primary reason you decided to do business with us? And make sure that recommendation referrals are some of the potential answers in the, the little boxes they can check. And when they make one of those the primary reason, then it's earned growth. And you can keep track, if, you're, if you want extra credit, find out who referred them, what individual customer had the biggest influence on them deciding to do business. And then you can start to learn who is generating referrals and how are we delighting them and what can I do better to make those customers feel the love and want to share it with all their friends and, and uh, colleagues.
1: I love the concept of of breaking it into those two categories, and I think it's great. I have to say from a practical perspective, I'm just thinking it's a big change, isn't it, for people?
2: Think about this. How much effort is their accounting firm putting into calculating depreciation and goodwill and all of these arcane ideas that take 20 times as much effort as just simply one onboarding question requires for uh, all new customers?
1: Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't dispute that the challenges i i guess it's how do you stop that becoming the next net promoter in terms of being abused i think one of the challenges for me with net promoter is in the way that organisations look at it is they think it's the answer to the universe and everything basically in terms of all we have to do is measure this one number and that's the answer
2: well they're half right the number is after the universal solution to the universe which is love thy neighbour as thyself And if if I am embracing that idea of treating others the way we'd want to be treated, of love thy neighbor, if that's what net promoter measures, it's quite good. The problem is people aren't doing it very effectively and they're uh, bribing and cheating and screwing up the system.
1: Yeah, I agree. And if I think about to a a number of organizations that we talk to, then they're doing it and they don't even know why they're doing it, to be honest with you. They're doing it just because everybody else is doing it. And do I actually think that they're brought into the concepts behind it and improving customer experience and everything else? Well, probably not. They're just doing it because now everybody else does it. What advice would you give to somebody that's like that then, Fred?
2: Well, I'd read the book. I mean, this is not a simple answer, but what what I lay out are dozens of companies who are doing it brilliantly and have overcome these challenges that you describe. And you're right. I think the astonishing number of people – have no idea how to calculate the score, what it means, how to do it correctly. They're just sort of going through the motions and they don't understand its connection to this most central idea of how can I live a life of purpose and meaning by enriching the lives I touch and living up to the golden rule. So there's, you know, there's, not, it's, there's no simple two word answer to that. But I would say measuring earned growth and making that the accounting metric And by the way, yes, you're going to get people trying to cheat at our growth, just like they try to cheat at booking revenues inappropriately or lying about costs. But the thing about accounting is there's a process for finding the cheaters and fixing it and making it harder to cheat. And over time, we'll get most of those things solved, not 100 percent of them.
0: It seems like for so many of the things that Colin and I talk about on the podcast, a lot of it comes down to culture and establishing a, a culture within the firm that will kind of meet the goals that you're laying out. A lot of what you're saying reminds me, and I'm going to mangle this story a little bit, but in Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, you know, some of the same messaging is similar, where it just comes down to caring about the person you're in a conversation with. And he shared a story about somebody seeking for advice for how to best fake that how can I fake interest in somebody? And, and the message was, no, you can't fake that. You have to genuinely be interested in people. Do you have advice or, or when you talk to firms about focusing people on this idea of just genuinely trying to make people's lives better? Like In some ways, that, that unfortunately goes against the culture of a lot of firms.
2: I agree with you that culture is the center. There is a, a chapter, I think it's chapter eight in the book that talks completely about how to build systems that reinforce cultural values Mm. in in rigorous ways. And I think there's just way too little uh, effort put into companies. The the one thing that a CEO can do is build the culture and figure out how, how to measure success in that community. And there is a lot of work that leaders need to do to build persistent systems that work not just once a quarter or the annual employee survey. I mean, those things are fine, but you need systems that work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365, when no one's looking, they just keep doing it. I'll give you an example of one of those at Bain. We decided a long ago, a long time ago that we only wanted people in, uh, in positions of leadership and authority who were good people, who lived our values. Yeah, they had to selling business and making the profitable uh, results that, you know, that's necessary. That's blood flow and, and eating three square meals. Got to do it, but it's not the purpose. Purpose is making people proud to be part of your team. We ask how likely you'd wanna work with this person again. We get at this idea of likelihood to recommend this person as a, as a uh, good leader. And those scores are carefully gathered anonymously, so there is no fear or favor in the system. So this
0: is from team members evaluating their leaders?
2: Yes, on essentially, on are they the kind of people that you want to work with and, and be led by? And, and we teach values, and everyone knows what our core values. So we have people getting graded as leaders based on how well they're living the culture. And the only ones in the top half, you know, roughly top half of, the, of those votes, are eligible to get promoted. So by the time you get to be an office head or a managing partner, these are outstanding people who are exemplars of the core values as our teams understand them. And that makes us so different than the average company that votes people up the chain of command based on how much they sell or how much you know how profit they deliver. And as as you know, profits is how much money you pull out of your customer's pocket, not how much enrichment you put into your customer's pocket.
1: Fred, could you tell the audience the difference between good profits and bad profits? I always remember you presenting on this, and I always thought it was great.
2: Yeah, I'll give you a good example of... Uh, Bad profits is when they uh, charge you three or 400% markups when you return the rental car and they, uh, and the gas is, the tank isn't full. There's no reason for doing that. It's just abusive and they can get away with it. Bad profits is when an airline changes you $200 to change a ticket that's uh, six months out. So they have no cost except the administrative effort, but they've got you and they've got your money. So they'll charge you to whatever they want to get away with. Those are just abusive. They make customers angry. They make accountants happy because it looks like profits, but it is destroying the future of the business. It's destroying the reputation of the firm. And it's it's sucking the soul out of the employees that have to uh, implement those aggressive policies.
1: As you were talking to Ryan's question and, and about the good profits, bad profits, I was actually reflecting back to when I used to be in corporate life. And what used to really bug me was that the guys that, Sold the most would invariably be, to be honest with you, stitching up the customer in some way, which I I always felt was, was clearly wrong.
2: Yeah, you know? or promising You know, yeah, the guys who do great in enterprise sale, they lie, and <laughs> get away with it.
1: As a person, they're wanting to be promoted and everything else. I used to think, well, what actually this is telling me to do is it's telling me to go out and cheat the customer because if I want to get on, I've got to sell loads of stuff and therefore if I sell loads of stuff, the only way to do it is this and then I'll get what I want. But I guess what you're saying is, I mean, clearly, the link I'm making is that's effectively bad profits and
2: that doesn't make it sustainable for the organization going forward. Bad profits at the higher sort of theoretical level are any profits that you earn from a customer who's a detractor. If they don't come away at least being passively satisfied, and I think good profits probably are coming from promoters. If you've been able to make their life better so impressively that they are uh, enthusiastic about telling their friends, then any profits you're earning from that customer are good profits. A story that I tell in the book is about Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, the software firm that into it and TurboTax and uh, so forth huge success 150 billion plus in market cap now Scott started at Bain with me 40, 45 years ago and he's always told me Fred we don't deserve a dollar of profit from a customer until we've made that customer happy and that's the philosophy between, behind good and bad profits when you've made a customer happy any profits you earn are good if you haven't You don't deserve a dime of profit, and any profit you've earned is bad.
1: And I think that is a great way to finish this podcast. I've got one question for you, Fred. Yeah. Uh, Well, in fact, I've got two questions for you. But we always like to finish with, I always call it, so what? So what's the practical thing? that somebody could do listening to this podcast? What would you advise they take away and do? Obviously, it's going to be buy your book and uh, read the book and and implement what's inside. But what what other practical things do you think somebody could do based on this conversation?
2: Well, if they're in a leadership role at all, I'd do a little two-question survey. I would say, uh, what's the primary purpose? Our business exists. Our company exists. And uh, without biasing anybody's thinking, just give them a choice of uh, it's to become a great place to work for employees, it's uh, to maximize shareholder value, it's to uh, enrich the lives of our customers, or it's uh, a, a balanced duty to all shareholders and see what the the answer is. I think people will be shocked to see how few Employees believe their company exists to make customers' lives better as their pri- as its primary purpose. The average answer is 10%. Shocking. Then the second question I'd ask is, uh, what's the one change that we need to make in our company to live up to our purpose? And just make it open text. And you're going to learn how far you need to change people's thinking on whether customer is first or not. And if it is first, what you need to change to do an even better job of enriching customer lives.
1: Great, Fred, really a privilege having you on the show. If people want to get hold of you and get hold of the book, then how do they do that?
2: Two easy ways is uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So go to my LinkedIn, subscribe to my newsletter there, Customer Obsession. And the second is to log in or just uh, visit our website, Net promotersystem.com and you'll see all of the latest videos and uh, tools and materials and and some free surveys that that can be used to implement these ideas.
0: Thank you, Fred, that was really informative. Really appreciate having you on.
2: My pleasure.
0: All right, Uh, thanks everyone for joining us and we will talk to you next week. Cheers. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive
2: Customer.